join me in prayer, please? Father, as we were just voicing in that song, I want to voice in prayer. I love you, Lord. I love you. I know that I love you because you first loved me, that we loved you because you first loved us. Father, you loved us enough to give your son for us in the ultimate sacrifice. And because of that love and the grace that that love brings through Christ, we can stand here before you today just absolutely confident of your grace, of your love, of your power, power displayed in the resurrection of Christ so that in prayer we can confidently bring our needs to you. Needs that you, the God of all-knowing, see completely, fully, see them better than we see them. Not only do you see the past and where we are at in the present, but you see every moment of our future. Not only do you see, but you care. Jesus' life taught us that. Not only do you care, but you have the power. Jesus' resurrection taught us that. And so we come to you as Jesus taught us to come and say, our Father in heaven, here we are. Give us our daily bread today, Lord. Meet our needs according to your riches in Christ. Whatever they are, Lord, you know. Meet them, bring peace to hearts that need it. Bring strength and encouragement. Lift the heads of those who are downcast. Those that are doubting, give them faith. Those that are questioning, give them answers. Lord, those that are struggling, give them strength. I'm not asking you to take the struggle away unless that's your will. But give them strength to remain true. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. That's what we need. Help us to be men and women like that comedic little video that we saw, really men and women who know the truth, live the truth, love the truth. God, as we gather here this morning, I want to remember tragedy that took place here on Friday evening, this chopper that went down and a large number of our forces, our soldiers lost their lives and there are grieving people, families across this nation, praying for comfort for them, strength for them, pray that the love of Christ would be 
testified to in those moments of grief. Lord, reminds us to pray for our country, for our leaders. Pray for our president, senators, congressmen, governors, mayors. Lord, they need wisdom from above. They need your truth to guide them. Show that to them, Lord. Put individuals around them that would speak truth to them in compelling ways. God, right here in this place this morning and across this city, close to 300 churches are meeting, 300 churches that believe in Jesus Christ and hold to the Word of God. Pray that you would bless them with your presence as you are blessing us here, that the Word of God would be opened and proclaimed and would accomplish great eternal things in the hearts of those that hear it. Asking you to do that here. Empty me of myself, Lord, and fill me with your spirit. Let the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ be seen clearly today. I pray. I thank you that you have heard and are going to answer those prayers. For your glory, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, please open to Romans chapter 5. We are going to continue in our study here through the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Last Sunday, we were on Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and we covered the first half of that verse, the difficult half of that verse. The half that sets up the truth, the first half that sets up the truth of the second half. Last week we talked about this phrase, that the law came, the law of God came to increase the trespass. Talk to you about how the law of God increases the trespass or increases sin and we kind of waded through the problem of the human condition, the sinful human condition. And right at the end of that message, it told you that the main purpose of the law, the one great purpose of the law was to, after showing us our deep, hopeless need in sin, to bring us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we could have our sins taken care of. That's the setup for the second half of Romans chapter 5, verse 20 that we're going to cover today. Let me read that full verse for you. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let me show you three very quick things about two critical words that are in that verse. Important for you to understand the truth that's here. In the ESV, the English Standard Version that I read, 
The last half of that verse, as you can see it up here, uses a different word for what is taking place with sin and what is taking place with grace. Sin is increasing, but grace is what? So we got increasing sin and abounding grace. In many other translations, English translations, actually, I believe the majority of them, they use the same word for those two words. And it really kind of hides the meaning. If you have the NIV, it reads like this, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Increased, increased. In the New King James Version, it says, where, grace abounded, where sin abounded, grace abounded. Same word. And the unfortunate reality there is that when we read that and the same word, we think Paul is really talking about the same thing. But in fact, he's not. Because in the Greek, he used a different word, a very specific different word when he was talking about the increase that comes to grace as opposed to sin. He used a much stronger word for grace than he used for the increase of sin. So number one, stronger word. Secondly, to his description of grace, he added to that stronger word a prefix. And that prefix at the beginning of that word would be similar to or equate with our English word super. It was a stronger word, and not only was it stronger, but it was super in nature. So that if you would translate that phrase there, understanding the stronger word for the increase of grace and the prefix, identifying it as super, here's what you could accurately translate it as, where sin increased grace superabounded. Or where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. A word picture that'll help to give some uh, texture to that idea, the force of this word, is the word flood or mighty flood. And the picture that paints is that in response to the increase of sin, that the grace of God breaks out against that sin and it flows out in a mighty torrent to sweep away everything that stands in its way, to engulf, to swallow up all sin. The picture is of a complete victory. There's a third aspect. We've got a stronger word. We've got a prefix that carries the idea of super. And then thirdly, the language that he uses between the two, between sin's increase and grace abounding, the language is not comparative language, it's superlative language. Here's what I mean by that. The main point that Paul is trying to make here 
In fact, it is the point that he has been dealing with in the verses, many of the verses preceding this text, as he has been showing a contrast between Adam and Christ, and he has been saying several times, much more, much more, much more, so that here is what he is not doing. He is not saying with this language that what grace does is it comes to what sin has destroyed and it counterbalances the negative effect and resets it back to ground zero, back to where it was. That's, what he's, that's, that's not what he's saying. That would be comparative language. That would be grace that was equal to restore the destruction of sin. And that would be great. That would be great. But the idea Paul is getting at here, the main point is that grace is superlative. That grace is far aboundingly greater than the sin. That what grace does is that it does not just take us back to what was lost in the fall, that it takes us so much higher than when than we ever, a place than we ever had. Grace breaks in and it comes in its cleansing, engulfing power and sweeps away the sin, but that's not all that it does. That would be a restoration. It does superaboundingly more than that. It makes a deposit. It does something brand new. It brings about a brand new creation, greater than there was before sin ever entered. We're going to talk about what that means. So here's what I want to do. I want to dive into this statement, this idea of the superabounding grace of God, and I want to show you this morning five ways in which as sin increases, grace superabounds all the more. This is not going to be an exhaustive list. This is just five that... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have time to explain to you, but there are five critical ways that show the superabounding grace of God. Here's the first one. If you're placing your worship folder there to take notes, I encourage you to do that. Here's the first truth here. Grace superabounds in the relationship that it births. Grace superabounds in the relationship that it births. Go back now to the Garden of Eden. It was sweet fellowship that Adam had with his Creator. There were frequent walks in that lush garden in the cool of the day where the creature had open and unbroken fellowship with his Creator. And then sin came. And when it came, it dug its trench swift and it dug its trench deep. Where there had been fellowship, now there was fear. Where there had been perfect self-esteem, 
in the creature before his creator. So that in that perfect self-esteem, he could walk with head high. Then after sin, he walked with head slumped in shame. And no longer did he walk close to his creator. But what we find is that he is running to hide. Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid, fear, because I was naked, shame, and so I hid, separation. And into that reality, all of the human race was birthed into the reality of that sin-destroyed close relationship. But then Jesus Christ came. Even at that moment in the garden, the promise of a Savior was made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, at the moment of judgment. And when the time had fully come, Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ went to the cross and sacrificed himself so that through that sacrifice, the gates, the floodgates of heaven could open up so that grace in its mighty flood could be unleashed into the life and upon the life of everyone who puts their faith in the Son. And when that grace is unleashed, it does something. It accomplishes something. It brings something. Let me read from John chapter 1 what the grace of God does. Remember, the point here is that grace superabounds in the relationship that it births. Listen to this, John chapter 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, the grace of God accomplishes a new birth. A new birth that superabounds. A new birth that is far greater than the relationship that Adam had with his creator. The relationship that Adam had with his creator was a close relationship, but it was one of servant to king. But the superabounding grace of God through Jesus Christ comes and it washes away the sin that separated that close relationship that Adam had with God. And it not only restores us to that place, but it rebirths us into a brand new relationship. A relationship of being a son of the Father in heaven or a daughter of the Father in heaven. A relationship that includes a brother by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace superabounds. It does not return us 
to where we were, it takes us infinitely higher. Number two, grace superabounds in the authority it grants. Grace superabounds in the authority that it grants. Before God created this sphere here that we're on, He created a host of angelic beings. They were exalted beings. And one being in particular that he created, Lucifer, was the being above all of the other hosts of heaven. He was God's highest creation. And then Lucifer rebelled against God and he gathered a group a percentage of the angels to follow him in his rebellion and they were kicked out of heaven, banished from their exalted position, cast down in judgment, never to rise again. And the certainty and finality of their ultimate judgment is just awaiting the final day. Then God created the human race. Scripture says that we were created a little lower than the angels of heaven. That's our created state in the beginning, created a little lower than the angels of heaven. But then man did the same thing by deception from Satan. Man rebelled and man rose up against God and God brought judgment upon man and man was banished from the garden but here's what happens folks when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ the superabounding grace of God the floodgates of that ocean of grace is opened in heaven and that heavenly torrent is unleashed into your life. And what it does, listen to what grace does. Grace, first of all, flows down. As water flows down and finds the lowest depression, grace flows down and it finds the very lowest pit of human depravity that you find yourself in. And it comes swarming around your life there in that deep pit and it grabs you in its current. Not the current of an undertow, but the current of an upper toe. And it begins to rise and it begins to swell and it carries you out of the pit of depravity and sin and it carries you up and beyond that place of closeness that Adam had in the garden. But it doesn't stop there. The swell of grace continues to rise. 
It goes beyond her earth and it reaches up to heaven and it actually comes to the very mountain of God. It moves beyond the places in which the angels of heaven rule, serve. It takes us even beyond their exalted position. Listen, it even then takes us beyond the place that that highest being called Lucifer fell from. And it doesn't even stop us there. It's waves lap right up to the steps leading to the throne. And the last crest of that wave of grace deposits us right beside the throne at the right hand of the almighty God in heaven. That's what grace does. That's where it lifts us. That's where it takes us. That's where it places us. No wonder that Paul said, where sin increases, grace superabounds. It abounds all the more because it does not just do what was undone. It does infinitely greater than that. It actually gives us a brand new relationship so that we are sons and daughters of God sitting at his right hand, joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinner, are you outcast? Are you struggling under the burden of sin and its condemning, crushing load? God wants me to tell you this morning, you don't have to leave here with that. There is something super abounding for you the grace of God is pushing at the gate of heaven's dam. It is longing to be unleashed into your life if you'll just put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is exactly what will happen. And that grace will come in its sweeping power through your life and it will take out all of the sin that stands in its way and it will deposit something. It will deposit a new creation. You rebirth, reborn into a son or a daughter of God. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Grace superabounds in the relationship at births, and grace superabounds in the authority it grants, number two. Think about the authority that you have from that exalted position. You have the very authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Folks, what that means is that you do not have to live under the dominion of Satan. You do not have to live as a slave to sin. 
You have authority. You have the authority of the victor, Jesus Christ, who is your joint heir, who has given you his authority. As a son or a daughter of God, you have all of the rights and all of the privileges that the bond of blood secures for you. All that is Christ's is yours. And he didn't live under the dominion of the enemy. He trampled on him. You have authority in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have power that comes with that authority. God wants you to understand the reality about the superabounding nature of grace and what it does so that you will access all that's been given to you so that you can live a life that is an example of the power of God, the grace of God that grants authority. So the superabounding grace of God abounds in the relationship that it births and it abounds in the authority that it grants. Number three, grace superabounds in the righteousness it guarantees. Grace superabounds in the righteousness that it guarantees. Adam fell. <clears throat> he fell from what? appeared to be a very secure position. I mean, think about the position that he had. He was in a place of absolute lavished abundance. No pain, no heartache, no toil. Every single need met. Before him, an inexhaustible amount of blessings were laid. He was cut, chiseled by God from the stock of human righteousness that was without sin. That was his initial creation. Creation without sin. He was free from the insatiable cravings of sin. His mind did not have the shackles of sin's deception on it. He could think clearly. Man, that was no slippery slope that Adam was placed on. Should have been firm ground. And in all of that, there was only one single pit into which he could fall. One pit. And before that pit, God erected a sign, if I can use that illustration, a sign that strongly warred, warned of the certainty and finality of judgment should he enter that pit. And the sign said this, of this tree you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Oh, folks, Adam had every advantage and one pit clearly lit up by the marquee of God saying, don't go here. 
But what he did is he jumped into the pit. In an act of open rebellion. And because he did that, all of us are born into that pit. That's our reality when we come into this world. And because of Adam's one sin, then we are born in sin. And so as sinners, we sin. And what the scripture says is true, that sin increases. But where sin increases, grace superabounds all the more. Because those who have received the grace of God available through Jesus Christ are infinitely, listen, infinitely more secure than where Adam stood before the fall. They are infinitely more secure than where Adam stood before the fall. Because the grace of God comes lashed with the righteousness of God. Let me say that again. The grace of God comes lashed with the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what kind of righteousness does the Lord Jesus Christ have? Was it like Adam's righteousness before he sinned? Or is it something far greater still? Psalms 119, a couple phrases from that chapter. Righteous are you, O Lord. Your righteousness is an, listen, is an everlasting righteousness. The grace of God brings an everlasting righteousness. And if it's everlasting, that means it lasts. That means you're secure. That means it never changes and you are grounded in, anchored in, unmovable in the grace of God. There is no pit for you to jump in outside of the grace of God. It's a much more secure position. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, what he did is he drank the cup of God's wrath against sin to the last drop. He satisfied every bit of the justice that God demanded against sin. So that for those who put their faith in him, there is nothing left to pay. Did you hear that? His grace covers your sins of the past, your sins of the present, and all of your sins of the future. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, the debt once paid cannot be demanded twice. The punishment once endured cannot be inflicted again. It has been fully satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 8, there is... Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who will separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord superabounding grace of God 
brings the gift of everlasting righteousness. That means we stand on solid ground. It's of a far greater quality than the righteousness that Adam had. Just a few more words about Christ's righteousness that is given to those who believe in Him. I just see a picture here, kind of a gleam of this. In the Old Testament, there's a man by the name of Joseph that was given a robe of many colors, a coat of many colors by his father. Jesus' robe of righteousness is a robe of many colors. Let me give you just a few of the colors in Christ's robe of righteousness. The color of the work of Christ is there. In John 17, Jesus prayed this, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. You accept Jesus, you get the color of the robe of righteousness that is like unto Jesus' work, being seen as if you completed all that He has given you to do. You get the color of the attitude of Christ. What was Christ's attitude? Being in very nature God, He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but what He did was He made Himself nothing took on the very nature of a servant and became obedient to death on a cross. Credible attitude. The color of the obedience of Christ. Jesus said, I do only what I see my Father doing. Perfect obedience. The color of the zeal of Christ. It was written of him, prophesied about him in the Old Testament, that zeal for God's house would consume him. The color of the compassion of Christ. When he was on the cross, he looked down at those who crucified him there, and he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The color of the love of Christ. Jesus said, here's the greatest command. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the man who said that is the only man who ever did that. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And the man who said that went over to a Roman cross and he drug it to the top of the hill of torture and he laid his flesh upon that rough-hewn beam so that he could lay his life down in the greatest example of love ever. You see, the righteousness of Christ, here's the point, the righteousness of Christ is not just not committing sin. The righteousness of Christ is always doing the right. It omits all wrong and it commits all right. That is is the nature of Christ's righteousness and that is the righteousness that you are given when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. God sees you as possessing the very righteousness of the Son of the living God because you are hidden in His righteousness. So how much greater, how much 
more superabounding is the righteousness that comes from the grace of God than what Adam had prior to sin. Number four, grace superabounds in the home that it gives. Sin stole from us paradise. But grace does not simply return us to paradise. It does something superaboundingly greater. The home that grace purchases for us is a land, I'm just going to give you kind of two points here. We could say so much. It's a land of superabounding light. This home of grace is a land of superabounding light. Consider the Garden of Eden. It had a greater light to rule the day, the sun, a lesser light to rule the night, the moon. When the moon came out, the blackness turned to gray. When the sun came out, the darkness fled from it into the canyons and into the forest and into the caves and behind the rocks and huddled up in little pools that we call shadows waiting for the king of the day to run its course and set on the far horizon so that it could darkness could come out and cover the land again. But that is not like heaven. Heaven needs no sun to rule the day and moon to rule the night because Scripture says there is no darkness there. There is no shadow at all. It is the land without shadow because the sun of righteousness is there and His light, the light from Him, penetrates all. It's got a supernatural quality to it that bends around the corners. It doesn't just push back the darkness. It completely eradicates it. It has omnipotent power over darkness. You see, the home that grace gives us is abundantly greater because it's a home of superabounding light. Secondly, it's a home of superabounding beauty. Folks, my eyes have seen. My eyes have seen sunsets of liquid red moving across the African landscape. My eyes have seen that, and it was breathtaking. My eyes have seen just snow-capped mountains of grandeur. My eyes have seen the blue waves crash into the beautiful light-colored sand of Cabo and foam up in a pure white. It was beautiful. My eyes have seen that. One night as a young man, I laid out in the Snake River Canyon up on a bluff on a cloud, perfectly cloudless, brilliant night. And the stars that were visible that night, I cannot even describe to you. A number beyond any man's ability to count. My eyes have seen some beautiful things. Not only that, my ears have heard. 
I have heard others that have encountered the beauty of creation tell about what they have seen in ways that have moved me. My eyes have seen, my ears have heard. Not only that, my mind is conceived. My mind is conceived of scenes and vistas that defy any attempt at human description. But let me tell you what the Word of God says about what the superabounding grace of God gives us for a home. 1 Corinthians 2.9 But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Oh, there is a superabounding aspect to the grace of God related to our future home, and it's far greater than what Adam had because Adam's eye had seen that, and no eye has seen what's going to be ours. It's superabounding grace. And then finally, lastly, superabounding grace abounds in the glory it brings to God. And I don't have time to unpack this one, but it, folks, it is the greatest of all. It's the greatest of all. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages, here's the reason, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Folks, God allowed sin to come into the world so that he could respond to that sin with his superabounding grace. And in the midst of that sin, his grace would shine brighter than it ever would have shown had Adam never sinned. It is the grace, the lavish, superabounding grace of God against the backdrop of a depraved humanity that brings a loud witness to the glory of God and that witness, what that verse is saying is that witness is going to be testifying in the heavenly realms to the heavenly beings throughout all of eternity. They are going to look at you and me bought and paid for, redeemed and recreated by the grace of God in Christ. They're going to look at us and say, oh my God, your glory is amazing. It's indescribable. It's going to be a testimony that goes on throughout the ages. And that testimony, that glory, the only reason that is possible, the only reason 
that is possible is because the very Son of God left heaven to take up a cross, to carry it to a hill outside of Jerusalem, and there lay his life down on that cross unto death. It is only through the broken body and spilled blood of the Lord that the grace of God can flow because mankind in their sin has something in the way of the grace of God and it's the justice of God. So that when you put your faith in Christ, the penalty that he already has paid removes the justice of God from being the barrier against your life that holds back grace so that when that barrier is removed, the grace rolls in like a mighty flood and it sweeps through your life and it washes out and cleanses of sin and it rises you up and it takes you beyond Adam's position and it takes you beyond the position of even Lucifer pre-sin and it takes you right up to the throne of God, sets you there at his right hand, secures you there for all eternity, gives you the authority of Christ, makes you a co-regent of the Son of God and will forever provide testimony to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. So it is so fitting that we would end this service with communion. A remembrance of the cross. It's really the center of humanity. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only place where the justice of God and the grace of God meet. This communion is a remembrance. It's an identification that we make that I, I have received the grace of God through Christ. And so I am remembering by symbolic action the bread representing the body of Christ that was broken, the, the, the juice representing the blood of Christ that was spilled for me. So if you have accepted Christ, this meal is for you. If you're here this morning, you want to accept him as your Savior, oh, the grace of God is just pushing at the dam of heaven, longing for the key of faith to open its door and come rushing through your life in its cleansing and recreating power. Ushers, would you come? Father, as we take this communion, as you told us to, help us to get just a clearer picture of your love and your sacrifice. In Christ's name, amen.